And now, our feature presentation. episode 34 of the Florida Sound Archive podcast. I'm Jeff Kaiser. My guest for June the 19th, 2022, Father's Day today, I have a very special guest on with me. He has promoted shows back in the 80s at clubs such as 27 Birds, the Cameo Theater, the Blitz, and most notably, the CBGBs of Miami, Flynn's. He is known as the ringmaster of Miami Punk Rock High. Let's welcome in Richard Shelter. How are you, Richard? I'm okay. I'm trying to calm myself down to do this. Talk to you today. How you doing, Jeff? I am doing wonderful. Looks Happy like Father's Day. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. It is Father's Day today, no doubt about it. So we can even just get rolling on that, you know, Father's Day today. Any memory that you have of your own dad that you just want to get this episode started with today? I've written about my dad. It's pretty public. It's like, you know, he was um, he was a, kind of like a guy that were like, you know, successive wives. He was like married like four times and had three sons from three different women. And he was a stepfather to a lot of kids. But he was cool. And he raised me in Harlem in New York. And uh, that taught me to be a kind of a self-reliant kid. Happy Father's Day, Pop, wherever you are. He was a cool guy. And um, he kind of left me on my own devices. And so on my own, as an only child, I kind of like learned my own music. If you grew up in the 60s in New York City, it was WABC. You had a little transistor radio plugged to your ear. You're either listening to the ball game or you listen to WABC. And WABC would play everything from the Supremes to the Doors. From, you know, Loving Spoonful to James Brown to Motown and Top 40. Everything you see in the Top 40, that was like the big Top 40 station. Top 40 in the 60s was pretty damn good because it was really diverse. And that's what you grew up with as a kid in New York. That's the sound of the city to me. What exactly brought you to Florida in the late 70s? After high school in Long Island, I slept Long Island, which was all, you know, cars and drugs and girls and I was in Nassau County, and I had a friend of mine who was gay who kept, because I was bridge and tunnel, he knew I wouldn't steal his apartment. <laughs> and so he, was, he would go off on uh, adventures and let me watch his place down in the village. The winter of New York 77. Now, everyone talks about New York 77 is like the greatest year in hell because that was like punk and CBGBs and Studio 54 and the blackout and Summer of Sam and... At that time, I was like a street kid. I was like, I was hustling T-shirts and tickets at rock concerts. I saw Zeppelin like eight, nine times. You know, I saw The Who like three times. I saw Queen like four times, you know, because I was at these shows buying and selling tickets, buying and selling T-shirts. But the winter of 77 was so cold. And my Cuban half-brother was down here in Miami, was down there, should be in Miami. And... Um, he said, man, come on, I got a job for you. Working construction, you make 10 bucks an hour. You know what 10 bucks an hour in 1977 is? And I looked out the window, the snow was like three feet high. And I go, you know, why suffer? 
let's get out of here. I came to Florida and um, I was hustling tickets in Florida at a John Denver concert downtown at Gusman, I think. And I met this cute little Jewish girl and she had an apartment on South Beach. And that was it. Went up to New York, grabbed my stuff, came back down. That's how I found Miami. I fell in love with a little Jewish girl. My brother got me construction work in January of 77. When I lived in the Versace mansion before he bought it, my balcony apartment was only 400 bucks a month. A balcony on the ocean, the front of the Amsterdam Palace was my apartment. Miami back then in the 70s, going into the 80s, everyone wants to, you to think about it as a, um, you know, cocaine cowboys, paradise lost. But for us who actually lived there and kind of grooved on it, it was funky. It was a, it was a, it was a ghost town. It was a forgotten resort town. So what was the music scene like when you arrived down there? Cover bands, cover bands, cover bands, cover bands. Um, I was in cover bands when I was a kid in New York. You know, I had high school bands and I slope and then um, 77 for a few months, I was in a band called cute with a K. See in 77, besides being in the village, I was going to Rocky Horror all the time. It was before the costumes and all the other stuff early Rocky Horror. So I was a fan of like meatloaf and stuff and cute. We would do like T-Rex covers, David Bowie covers, badly, of course, badly. So when I came down to Florida and I started moving around different parts of Florida, West Palm, Fort Lauderdale, I started being in bands. I was in a band called Sluggo for a long time, for about a year, playing covers and playing places like, you know, like it was a bar out of 441. We used to play Tight Squeeze. Now, if you want to talk about 78, 79, you got to mention Tight Squeeze because that was an early, early organized band club. It was on Hollywood Beach, Hollywood and Johnson. And my band played there as a cover band, but I swear I saw The Eat. First time I saw Charlie, The Kids, and there was a couple other bands. He used to have a new wave night there, like a Monday or Tuesday night, showcase night. And you'd see some amazing shows down there. I mean, looking back in retrospect, watching Eddie O'Brien wearing a cornrows in his hair like Bo Derek, and wearing like a, a priest collar and playing Nixon's binoculars. I mean, I was a very impressionable, like 20 year old at that yeah. time. Why did you even get into music in the first place? Just playing and wanting to do that. When I was younger, not so much that I'm an old man, but when I was younger, I had a good voice and I had been in choirs and chorus from a very, very early age. Part of the old New York city school system is that everybody did something musically, whether it was band or choral. And, uh, so I grew up all through elementary school and then junior high and high being in choruses. And then, of course, high school, you start being in bands. So with all this music, obviously, you were listening to and starting to promote in South Florida. How did you even fall into the whole punk music in the first place? Well, um, back up to New York in 77, Scott Muni on WPLJ used to do um, British things. And British Things was his, like his a Friday afternoon, two-hour show where he would play Pistols and Clash and, and all, you know, the undertones and just all the stuff that was coming out of England in 77. So whatever was in England in 77, early 78, Scott Muni was playing it. He had a direct pipeline. And I was spending a lot of time down at Bleaker Bob's who really loved the Dead Kennedys. I'd walk in there three or four different times and the Dead Kennedys would be playing. People just love the Dead Kennedys down at Bleaker Bob's. So that's what turned me on to punk, was listening to Scott Muni, hearing the Pistols. I remember watching NBC News as they were 
breathlessly following the Pistols tour that Malcolm McLaren, and they got, you know, playing all these like rodeo houses and stuff. So when I was driving a cab, I was doing the whole, I was driving a cab in Florida and I was doing the whole uh, deer hunter thing with the Mohawk and stuff. I'm driving a taxi. So no one would fuck you, you know? Was that the so, first um, time though you remember hearing the word punk though was when you were going to Bleaker Bob's in New York? Was that the first time you heard that word? I exactly when, but he's either hearing the Dead Kennedys for the first time in Bleaker Bob's or hearing the Pistols for the first time on Scott Muni's show. British things. I tune in every Friday from four to six to hear the British things. And it was just like, because I was a Who fan. I mean, you know. Quadrophenia. I'm a Who fan. So are a Who at fan. that time, I love the Who. I saw the Jam at the CBGB's Theater. I saw a bunch of bands back there, you know? I wasn't a CB's regular. I was more, like I said, I was more West Village. I was more of a Rocky Horror, you know, that kind of stuff, you know? What do you remember the first punk show or new wave show you ever saw yourself? I would say the Jam. The Jam? The Jam. Being the street hustler that I was, I knew how to get tickets when I didn't have any when I walked up. Especially in the 70s, you look for the satin jackets. Because the satin jackets guys are the guys from the record company, and they always got comps. So I'd ask him to sell me a comp or lay an extra comp on me. Guy did. I sat in like the fifth row center. And the CBGB Theater was a very short-lived theater. Hilly was running. It was like about a block away from the Academy of Music little rundown theater and she still had the scaffolding up they were still doing the work on the place mick jagger and his time jerry hall were sitting like two rows behind me there's like the jam's first time in new york city and it was like all these who fans are there to see the jam it was pretty cool they opened with this is the modern world and everybody wanted an encore they came back out and they confessed they had no more songs so they played this is the modern world a second time nice that'll be the first band then you, when you go you know you have to give some dap to um the agora ballroom when the Button South was the Agora, and they were part of that chain in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, these are the guys that brought down, my God, Iggy multiple times. Um, I saw Wall of Voodoo. I saw, I saw the Bus Boys. I saw the Vapors. And they always have like a local band open up for them. So that's the first time I saw like Screaming Sneakers. First time I saw Isaac's Penis. <laughs> Clever name there. I know, I know. Isaac is a Isaac is a friend of Johnny Depp's, and he's a is he was a wonderful guitar player. Had a couple of great bands, U.S. Furies. But he get drunk and whip it out on stage. It was funny. I knew Isaac pretty well because Isaac, he was iconic for us back then. We loved Isaac. Isaac was uh, there were two really cool Jewish rockers from that time: it was Isaac Baruch and Bobby Tack. Bobby Tack from the Cichlids and Nouveau Riche and stuff. And I knew both of them back in the early days. Oh, and Debbie Rage. Debbie Rage used to go to England on the cheap flights and hang out with Joe Strummer and come back and have these pictures of her just hanging out with the Clash, you know? These are like the early people that I learned from. Right. Isaac and Bobby and Debbie Rage. And Were you at all at that time learning about how to promote shows? Like what year did that come around for okay, you? Well, I guess here's the thing. Being a New York kid that was a cover band in New York. When you're a cover band in New York City, you have to show up with your own PA, your own lights, anything you want to do. So when I got down to Florida, and I, they'd be like an off gig here and an off gig here, or they tight squeeze closed. There was Finders on Hallandale Beach. I didn't know about some of the other clubs. I saw the front. I saw Charlie somewhere. I can't remember where. 
but I knew that there was a whole bunch of bands out there, but no one had thought to look, just get a sound system, hire professional staff for this, for the crew. That was Stephen Funky and Tom Winch, my two original sound men have a good stage, go to some cover bar. How much do you give the bands to play Friday, Saturday, 600? Give me three. I'll give you five nights a week. I'll give you four nights a week. That's how you do it. So you're getting money from the club. You're running a serious door, checking ID and getting like three bucks, two bucks, five bucks, depending on who's playing. And you bring in bands that already had good followings. The Front, Charlie Pickett, the amazing Cats on Holiday, uh, Mike Molina's band, The Coins. Um, the smart move was always to mix bands that were popular in Dade County. The ones that were popular in Broward County were completely different. That was like Charlie and The Chant and uh, the, the reactions and stuff like that. So if you mix them up, that's where you get a double crowd. And that's what made it work out. Yeah. But still, I can get 50 or 100 punks to see Charlie Pickett in the front, Cats on Holiday, you know, no problem. Were you on like some kind of handshake deal or did you have a contract of yeah, some sort? Pretty much, pretty much a handshake deal. Mm -hmm. The Big Daddies was a chain, but they let their local manager as they see fit because they know the neighborhood. And Coconut Grove was cool. You know, when I came to Miami, there were two neighborhoods for me. I didn't know much at all about Broward County. I didn't know so much about South Miami until I discovered Zed Cars and Rollos. That was uh, Halloween, 1978, when I discovered Zed Cars. They were playing at the Rocky Hour Picture Show party at the Grove, Halloween, 1978. And they were the band hired to play in the pit in front of the screen. That was the first time I saw Zed Cars doing uh, John Entwistle covers like my wife. What do you remember the first show being that you ever promoted in South Florida? That would be, that would be 27 Birds. That was the opening weekend. Yeah. Front was the first weekend. I forget who opened for them. And then Charlie Pickett was the second weekend. And from there, it just took on a life of its own. One of the first shows about Alex and his early punk band, uh, Crucial Truth, they were playing punk shows in New York. And they were in town. They played like, like a Tuesday night for me. And that was cool because that was one of the first times I took a band down to um, the radio station at the University of Miami. And I started developing a relationship with them. Jeff, you understand something. It's the land of cover bands. So if you find out who the entertainment writer is for the Herald, the Times, the Miami, uh, the, I'm sorry, the Fort Lauderdale, Fort uh, Sentinel, whatever they call that paper up there, you just find who the entertainment person is and you bring them the flyer. You come and talk to them and say, look, it's the land of cover bands, but here's bands doing their own music. Come check it out, or at least give us a mention, because these are guys that are trying to make their own music. I necessarily tell them that it was punk music. Right. I just told them it was original, it was bands doing their own music. And it's true, because some of the bands I hired were, were metal. What was the reaction, though, when you said the word punk at that time to the people you were trying to negotiate with and bring I in bands? I didn't. I didn't. I said new music. I said original bands. I said new wave, never said punk. Now when you're doing business. Why was that? Because punk had a negative connotation. It was a very redneck town back then. Weird. It's that weird mix of redneck and resort town. You know, like Daytona Beach, right? Right. At the 90s and the 2000s, then it became hip, then it became European, then it became yeah. the art scene. We had the early tendrils of that 
when I was doing the cameo, because the cameo was mid 80s. Mm. And it was right across the street from Española Way. And I knew some of the artists that had like storefronts where they lived in on Española Way. Now these are like million dollar restaurants. But back then there were just storefronts and guys used to live in them and do art, open the door every day, try to sell a few pieces of art. After a year, 27 Birds, the Rednecks got their way and they brought the cover bands back, even though we were making money for them. But Big Daddy's gave us another place in Hialeah. That was the Blitz in Hialeah. But that only lasted three months. And so I did the gun club there. It was my first national show. And somebody brought John Flynn and he hired me to go do Flynn's. And that was the beginning of the most magical year and a half. And the thing about Flynn's is that you can walk in any night and one night you're going to see Charlie Pickett or Crank or the Bobs. And another night you'll see like Z-Toys, Hammerhead, Cryer. You see all the, you know, you see all these metal bands that had certain nights of the week. It's very cool. And they're all playing mostly original music. Speaking about some of the other bands that would play, I know there was a lot of Florida bands. Some of them. I had even- a notebook, mm. right? That had a calendar section. And I had all the bands. It's in my storage. I still have it. I have all the bands. Like almost like between 50 and 100 bands at any given time. Because and that's something I want to say. This is important. The act of having a regular venue where you can get paid, even if it's only like you know, 30 bucks or 50 bucks, you can get paid to do your own music is very conducive to the community going, hey, I'll just put a band together, man. We, go, we can play there, you know? That cool place, you know? And so the act of having a regular gig, whether it was the Birds, Blitz, especially Flynn's, I think in a lot of, in a lot of ways, more bands would, because they know they have a place to play. On that note, though, like the Blitz, for example... I don't know of any other clubs like that that would have opened up in Hialeah of all places. So why Hialeah at that time? And it was what- their worst operating location in the Big Daddy's chain. It was this 70s strip mall neighborhood disco. I'm kidding, disco. It still had the disco flow with the lights, with the, with the panels that lit up, the mirror balls. So and I had a steam mach- a smoke machine. Uh, DJ Alex was heavy into goth he had the, he was in he was in a i can't remember the name of his band he was in rugged something and he had a huge mohawk and uh he would play like bella lugosi's dead and telegram sam and he'd fill the place up with smoke and these kids would be like bouncing off the walls onto this smoke covered disco floor to like Bauhaus. <laughs> it's great. were you into those bands too yeah i mean this was way I think you talked to Jeff Lemlake or, or Jeff uh, from Trash Fever or Leslie or Ted or Rich from yesterday. You know, I learned from them. I didn't even know about the, I, I knew about Lou Reed because I knew about um, Rock and Roll Animal. You know, even when I was a kid in the 70s, you knew Rock and Roll Animal. I was not cool enough to know about the Velvet Underground until I started hearing it from Charlie and hearing the records at, at Leslie's uh, Open Books and Records. So, you know, my background was The Who and Alice Cooper. and I would say that left a mark on you, though, because on your Preacher's record, you do a Lou Reed cover. Yep. I Want to Be Black. Great song. Yeah. So why, why not we talk about that record? Uh, came out in 1986, but I believe The Preachers may have started before that. So what are some of your memories of The Preachers and that band? And 
All right. Well, first off, I got to say this: there, there, there's a. In retrospect, it's amazing the quality of the talent that I was able to put together, because Nick Kane was the first guitar player for the Mavericks. He's got a Grammy. Slip Mahoney is basically inherited the mantle of the rockabilly king of South Florida or Florida. In fact, he plays all over the state. So Slip Mahoney and Nick Kane together on on guitars was. If you listen to the to the guitars on that record, it's pretty it's pretty amazing. And then Tom, um, he came to the reunion from Texas. Tom Ray was a good. He was like a, a cover band drummer who said, "Oh, here's a cool band again," because we had a place to play. Um, Mutt Murphy was the bass player. He was Slip's bass player at the time. Lost track with him over the years. But Nick Slip Tom, I played one of the guys from. Uh, from Ico Ico played bass for us. We did the reunion. The preachers were just me taking the influence that Charlie gave me, and I was into bands like Tex and the Horseheads, Heavy, uh, Social Distortion. And so I wanted like a psychedelic cowpunk band. Don't think I quite got there with the band, but it was a fun way of putting it together, and I was able to get us gigs. Obviously, the smartest thing we did was we took a we took a cover band gig. In North Miami, at a neighborhood bar, for like three weeks, we had to do three sets. Mm. We would do a rockabilly set, our show, and then he would do another rockabilly set at the end. Doing that, it's like you know the Beatles in Hamburg. You get tight when you have to do like three sets a night, two, three nights a week. When you have to do that, the Beatles used to do like what five, six sets a night till four in the morning in Hamburg. He went. They went back to England. And everyone was like, "Wow, look how tight they were." So when the preachers did this.、Um, Cover band gig for a month, and then we got back into playing with other bands in the local scene. We were like show tight. We weren't like raggedy punk ass, you know. <laughs> What do you remember that cost thing at the time to produce that record? A couple thousand. It's just a, it, was a, it was. I thought of it as a. I mean, I'm gonna make a thousand calling cards with vinyl. And you had Bob Roop and、uh, Rap Bastard also help on that record too. Bob Root is a huge influence on me. He hates me. <laughs> He's a big influence on me. Why does he hate you? Oh fuck if I know. The Bob's were a huge, hugely great band、uh, back then. It was an incredible songwriter. Kevin McIver, Bobby Tack, and then my buddy Johnny Sticks、uh, and Bob Root. Bob Root helped produce the record, and Frank and Hal especially did a lot of work on the record when the other two main guys were around. It was six studios. It was just you know, neighborhood that the neighborhood guys that I knew. Hey, he's got a studio. He'll help me produce it. I wish I could have done it better. I think it was like first time thing, first time jitters. You know.、Hmm. Did you all ever get any airplay at all on like off the beaten path with Bob Slade? We actually got airplay in colleges. We sent we sent them to colleges. We actually got airplay. We would pull into town like Columbia, South Carolina, and their station had been playing our record and. We we opened for the Dead Milkmen, but there was like about fifty people there to see us. It was kind of cool. So, but yeah, Bob Slade would play it all the time. I think some of the others would play it a little bit, but not much. You know, I mean, like any other local band that puts out their own their own vinyl. The Preachers were in Los Angeles doing our music in nineteen eighty five or six. We would have been signed like that, like that. Charlie, Crank, out of Flynn's would have been you know before Jane's Addiction. 
Sleeper Reason would have fit in somewhere. I'm trying to think of what I think they might be better in the New York, in the New York scene because they're stylish. I remember them being stylish. Brother, there was a there was like a fifty to hundred bands. My lord, local bands from that time. So we got Sleeper Reason, Z Toys, Hammerhead, the Espressos, the Gay Cowboys in Bondage. The Gay Cowboys in Bondage could pack the place on a Friday, Saturday night. Why were they so popular? Because I did see them on a lot of flyers. Why they were, were they like they were they were of that gnarly descendants all type of snotty punk, you know, snotty punks. Snotty punks, you know, they were and that was popular. They have snotty snotty punkism was popular. Do you think that the Cowboys and Bondage were like the first of their kind in Miami to bring no, that? No, no, no. no. Was, I'm not gonna say they were derivative, they had their own original style, but it all goes back to Eddie O'Brien and the Eat. It goes back to the Eat, you know, because and the Cichlids, of course, because the Cichlids did get popularity, did get airplay, did open for major shows like the Pretenders at Gusman. That was that was like the Ramones in London gig for us in Miami. When the Pretenders came to town on their very first tour and the Cichlids opened for them, that at Gusman Hall, that was a very important show. Also, there was a gig, a Dade County gig at Gusman, where it was um, the kids, Zed cars, and the coins, and got a pretty good crowd. Right, more bands from that era. Um, the Espressos was a noise band that I love very much. Kenny. Wasn't yeah. uh, Rob Alba's ex-cons around at that time, too? Uh, let's talk about the ex-cons. The ex-cons, when I was driving a cab, they would come to my cab stand and bring me, like, their record and like um, scotch take together uh, press kits. They were great. And I loved them because they were power pop. They were fun. Rob Elba and I have remained close over the years and in contact. If they call me the Godfather, he's the new Godfather because he, he's like the, you know, the Jewish uncles are like the whole Florida scene, you know, the whole South Florida scene. And I'm proud of him. The ex-con to see him when he was in high school, coming out with his band, the ex-cons, and singing pop songs like Do Dead People Tan. How can you not love that? As a New York punk, it I thought that was a great title. <laughs> oh, no, really, it's a great And they were obnoxious, and they were great, and they were tight. Yeah. And um, Rob used to write some amazing songs like Orange Sky. You know, I don't feel what it was about, but it was kind of apocalyptic. And um, he had a song called Cancer about him fighting his stutter when he was growing up. Great song. He was a smart songwriter you know there were some very very good songwriters like ex-cons the bobs were amazing songwriters you get a chance to listen to that bobs record that's over your shoulder it's worth it crank were good songwriters uh elaine from crank i think she wrote the lyrics the last gig with the ex-cons was out at the blitz the blitz ended like a lot of bands the blitz ended the front uh ex-cons i think the spin outs had their last show up there weird i did read that or the wow. night that the night that joey ramon yeah. was at the blitz how how drunk he was and he was napping on the street and all that is that a true story from your recollection too uh, i can tell you the total inside word on that okay it was this french girl that i liked went home with me one night and then we were having a saturday night at the blitz and it was the front and the spin outs and, you know, Greg knows that I love the front, you know, God bless Randy Rush and all those guys. Flynn 
was a keyboard player in the band. He was a he was a neighbor of mine in Coconut Grove while I was running the uh, 27 Birds. He lived literally down the hall at the I Ching building. So she goes to see the Ramones that night. They were playing at the uh, Agora Ballroom, right? The Button South, whatever they call it then. And she hooked up with Joey. And she said, I know this great place. And she got Joey to pay for a taxi from Hallandale down to uh, Hialeah. And uh, she brought Joey to the, uh, to the Blitz. We were all like agog, you know. She came up to me later on. She goes, I brought him here for you. I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. Joey took some pictures with a bunch of us. We asked him to come on inside. Everybody bought him drinks. And he was already pretty drunk, and then we got him even drunker. Then um, we got him on stage to sing uh, Needles and Pins with the spinouts, who were finishing up their set, I think, or between sets or something. It was pretty cool. Uh, Stephen Funky, our sound man, he's got a recording of that. And uh, there's some great photos in front of the stage, in front of the, front of the, uh, the Blitz, with uh, me and Joey Maya and Steve Lambert and Joey Marone and the, and the French girl. Uh, and the truth of it is, by the end of the night, and I imagine Joey still had a taxi coming, but he was literally laying on the sidewalk. The Blitz was a big daddy's like neighborhood bar in a, in a strip mall. So they had those strip mall sidewalk in front of it. And Joey and the French girl are like, just like, passed out on the sidewalk in front of the Blitz. We're already closing up. People are like leaving. People are stepping over Joey Ramon's body. Good night, Joey. Stepping over his body to go home. That's a true story. I watched a couple people do that. I think as a goof, as a goof you know? Yeah. That record right there, that front record was, according to Greg, that was the last front show they ever did at the Blitz. That, that, was, that show was like the end of the early days. That was the 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 uh the freshman years and now we're going to the sophomore years which was flynn's uh flynn's though well you read the piece that i wrote for uh tim heinley's book where the wild gigs are the, yes. the paragraph on flynn's apparently should be that chapter on flynn's yep flynn's was our space and the neighborhood 71st and collins 71st in the ocean is not a very populous neighborhood but there was a denny's and a McDonald's and some touristy stuff. One of the things that I read that you shared with me was that Flynn's uh, Flynn's had a different name before it became Flynn's, right? It was called the dream bar dream bar. And it was a different kind of club, a very loungy, maybe jazzy kind of club. At what point did it make that pivot to become more of like the CBGBs of Miami? Very simple. It was built in the early sixties. And the original, there are, there are postcard pictures that I have, and I posted on the Flynn's page of what it looked like. And it had that whole Googie, Jetsons style, but it was called the Dream Bar because all the waitresses, they wore not nightgowns and negligee, sexy stuff, and they were serving drinks. There's a rumor that Sinatra was kicked out one night because he was drunk and belligerent. There's a couple of jazz live albums that were recorded there, in like in the mid-60s. That neighborhood in the 70s, the whole, you know, South Beach as a whole went down in the 70s. This is from, what are you talking about, 163rd Street and all those hotels. They wanted to have casinos in the lobby. That didn't happen. And then North Beach, where Flynn's was, and South Beach was just, you know, God's waiting room. The 70s were a down period. And I think the bar closed and nobody ran it for a while. Then John Flynn picked it up. 
and he wanted to have bands and some kids, some local kids had found him and they did a couple shows there and then someone brought him to the gun club. John, as far as I know, it was closed when John bought it. He was this big Irishman that just, as long as he was making money, he didn't care. Bad news, was, what killed Flynn's was that when they started running the door and the bar, and then we started getting a lot less money because they wanted to, well, I, in retrospect, I understand. They should, I should have given more money out of the door, but I was giving it to the bands. How much were some bands making at that time? You could make like two, $300, $400 for a weekend. Compared to some other clubs in the area, was that good money? What other clubs? What other clubs? Mm. There was a few other clubs that were there, but those were like weird off gigs you had to put together yourself. Mm. I know they had bands occasionally at the New Wave Lounge, for instance. If a named New Wave band came to South Florida, they would always look for a local band to open up. There's really not a lot of gigs at the time. We were like the only place if you wanted to do like your own music, your own style. Did you know there was an episode of Miami Vice where you could see Flynn's in the background shot? I have the screen grab. I know. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a good depiction of what Flynn's looked like from the outside? Yeah, it was, it was completely nondescript. The cool thing about Flynn's is that it was like a hidden clubhouse. You know, this weird, dank, padded room where you could fit like 150 people in and it'd get warm and hot and sweaty and had a dance floor in the back. And outside that door, the emergency door, there's a pool. And beyond that is the Atlantic Ocean. And above your head is a flea bag hotel. We can get a room for like nothing. Bands used to love to come to Flynn's because they could, they would, after they, when they figured it out, they would book a couple of off days after their gig so they knew they could like relax in a room on the beach for like 20 bucks. Jello Biafra was somebody I loved and respected a lot. And he took a couple extra days in Miami. And the night of the Dead Kennedys at the cameo, he wasn't like a groupie kind of guy. He's, he's, he was just like, he grabbed like a bag of cassettes of bands had given him, and we jumped in my Nova, or I think I had the GTO, I had the GTO then. And he wanted to drive around the parts of Miami that had burned in the riots. He wanted to drive around the bad neighborhoods, and he's listening to different cassette tapes. So he had an off day the next day. So um, I took him to the Broward County Fair, riding the roller coaster with Jello Biafra. The Broward County Fair had like a sideshow, you know, with the the freaks and stuff. Oh, he loved it. He got the postcards with the freak pictures. <laughs> um, Henry Rollins, you know, Greg Ginn, the, the flag boys. I would, you know, every time they were in town, they were very business oriented, you know. We're in Tim Miami. Let's go to open records. Let's go to go to different record stores, do an in-store appearance. Greg played an in-store at open records with Gone, his, his side project. How important was open records at that time? Very important. Leslie, Richard, and yesterday and today for Dade County, but Leslie especially was like a beacon for both counties because they were issues in North Miami right off the 95. So it was like an easy for anybody. She's a very smart location. We loved her. We loved her. We loved Ted. And um, they turned me on to so much music I can't even begin. And I know they're a very big part of Charlie's history. And um, there's not enough words to describe just how involved they were with the scene in promoting, in shaping people's taste in music. And Leslie's an angel, you know, she, uh, 
was a part of everything down there at the time. You also ran some shows at some other venues as well. I think one yeah. of the, I think one of the spots that you may have run more was the Fireman's Benevolent Hall. Is that right? In the transition between Flynn's and the hall shows, mm-hmm. I was trying to find different places to do shows. And we did those shows, those two shows, Huskadoo and then Black Flag. But it wouldn't work because it was like 200 degrees inside the place. It was just ridiculous. It's too hot. Uh, then we found the Cameo Theater. Um, during the year and a half from founding the Cameo Theater to when I left town with the Preachers and then I left town for L.A., if I had bands that weren't big enough for the Cameo, I would still do shows with them down at the Treehouse. At the Treehouse, I did Alien Sex Fiend. I did Tupelo Chain Sex. I did 10,000 Maniacs. Because these are like very hip club gigs for these bands. And the Treehouse could pay pretty good, pretty good money. It could pack out. That was in Hallandale, right? Right. Right off the railroad tracks. Very cool place. Were those the only two venues in Hallandale, the Treehouse and the Agora at that time? At that time, yeah, that was it. Why Hallandale? And Hallandale had finders on the, on the beach, but I went there a couple of times. I was still driving a cab. How long did you do that for? I did that for uh, three years. I did it for a couple of years, and then I went, I went up north to be in a band, and it came back, and I picked it up again. And then during the last year of it is when I was doing 27 Birds. So I was driving a cab and then running the club, and then after a while, I didn't have to ride, drive the cab anymore. Mm. The clubs are doing okay. Yeah. Yeah. And again, when you're a punk and you're paying your rent is like 150 bucks on Coconut Grove, you know, or $200 on Miami Beach, you don't need a lot of money to survive. It's very true. There were some other venues, too, that were around at the time. Kind of go through a few of them and do a little word association here. I was at, I was at the Circle Jerks at Art Stocks Playpen South. That was a truly amazing gig. Mm. Summers on the Beach was bringing X back for a second time. And they called me up. They asked me to promote it for them. And they let me, let me pick the opening act, which was Charlie Pickett. And the first band was me of the Preachers. That was a great gig. That's when X wrote Skin Deep Town because they hated Fort Lauderdale. I remember the Beastie Boys at the Sunrise Theater. I remember Devo at Gusman. Oh, God. Devo at Gusman was supernatural because they were the first ones with the computerized lights. Ugh. They were amazing. Everything was wireless. Yeah. The five guys with instruments running around like uh, like Blue Man Group or something, you know? Pretty high tech at the time. I told you about the Pretenders gig. That was pretty amazing. The Agora Ballroom, man, Jesus. I, so many of us saw the Ramones there. We saw Iggy there. Saw Iggy there like three times. One time with Glenn Burke from Blondie. Mm. Um, the Agora Ballroom was cool. The Treehouse, though, I love the Treehouse because... When I was in cover bands, I was in Sluggo. There was the kind of bar that was big enough to have a big stage over here and a second stage over here, and the bands would alternate sets. There was always a, a band going on. It was just, ah! But then we used the main stage on, like, Monday nights, Tuesday nights, and I'd bring, like, 10,000 maniacs in there, and the place would pack out on a Tuesday night, so they were happy. You know, I would do, like, maybe one show every week or every two weeks at the Treehouse. Cause these are bands I could not bring to the Cameo, because, you know, the cameo was all big shows. You know, mm. then we're talking about suicidal, dead Kennedys. Right. Lords, you know, you're doing the Halloween show with DRI. You know, I mean, these are like big shows, you know. 500 kids show up, 300, 700. 
and, 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 and I've talked about this many times, it loses something, you know. Flynn's was everything. Noise, poetry, heavy metal, punk, cowpunk, mm-hmm. Jane's Addiction types, that, you know. Right. Stuff. That's New Wave. That's CBGB's. Cameo is like the Fender's Ballroom in Long Beach. I mean, it's just punk, 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 because that's going to bring like 500 all ages kids. You've mentioned Charlie Pickett's name a couple times. And I believe around this same time, you had gone out on tour as his road manager. Can you talk a little bit about your time on the road with Charlie Pickett? Me and Charlie Pickett did a nationwide tour for like six months. Charlie's got a pragmatism that I could never match because I always like live my life like a punk. And Charlie sometime late in life, he said, all right, straighten up and fly right. And he did. Charlie's important to me because he's the one that really got me to understand like Velvet Underground, Johnny Thunders, Flaming Groovies. I still listen to Charlie's music on a regular basis. There isn't a month that goes by where I haven't thrown a Charlie record on at one time. If there was one Charlie Pickett song you would want to make sure these club owners or promoters were listening to, what song was that at that time? The most popular song would be, If This Is Love, Can I Get My Money Back? Mark Markham, right, wrote that song? I think so. Yeah. My favorite Charlie Pickett song. Yeah, I love that song. Yeah. Have you ever heard Phantom Train? Brilliant song. Brilliant. Were you at at that show? Live at the Button? No, I was not. No, I was not. I found out about Charlie after that record came out. That always really confused me because growing up in South Florida, there was the Button South, which later obviously came from the Agora. But right. the the Button, I wasn't familiar with the Button. Were you? One of the beaches been there since the fifties. Hmm. I think it was in the old those uh, that footage Shallow movies or whatever. I don't know, whatever. You know, and the Button had bands there. I think I played there once. You know, cover bands. So to see that record of Charlie playing there and the way it sounds, that record is so lively. Charlie made friends wherever he went when we were touring America. It was pretty cool. And it was good for me to get out of the house. How long were you on that tour for? Six months. Came back broke, but came back with memories that you can't, you can't put a price tag on. I bet. What was it about you? Why he gravitated to you too as a person? I don't know. I, I think I think it started with the shared love for like the Velvet Underground. When I realized he was covering a couple of Velvet Underground songs, like White Heat, White Light. And then I started listening to the lyrics, the lyrics of his songs, like Phantom Train, the record behind you, that Cowboy Junkie Go-Go record, you know? We toured the country on that record, and I believed on that record. It's a good record. It appealed to me. Also, I got to say, you know, the coolest drummer, all due respect to Bobby Tack and Bruno from Zed Cars, but the coolest drummer was, uh, was Johnny Sticks, John Galway. At one point, John Galway was drumming for Charlie Pickett, Larry Joe Miller, the Bobs, Crank, and I don't know what else. There were some weekends where he was like on both the opening band and the the headlining band. And we became very, very close friends. He was a recreational drug user. He lived in Overtown. So he used to cross from his his house through the cemetery and go to Overtown to cop. Johnny was a big influence on a lot of us on the scene because he was this kid from Carolina who was like a great, incredibly great drummer, tight drummer, old school, like Charlie Watts means you could do anything. And uh, he drove a, a cookie delivery truck, low black. And he always dressed like James Dean. 
and um, you know, blonde, blue-eyed, as Charlie called him, blonde, blue-eyed goon. So where did you find yourself doing after you came back from being on the road with Charlie Pickett for so long? I worked at Tobacco Road for a while because they were friends and I was a regular there. I wanted to do hall shows because I saw all these big hall shows when I was on the road. And I knew that if I was going to bring punk rock back to Miami after my tour with Charlie, I knew I'd have all ages. So um, that was we did the Fireman's Hall with Black Flag and Husker Du. And by that time, I was living in the Versace mansion, but it wasn't Versace, it was the Amsterdam Palace. And then right under my nose was the Cameo Theater. It was doing Spanish movies and boxing once a month. So I had this big platform. So I took a look at it, I go, oh my God, that's perfect, that's our stage. It's an old Israeli guy, and I made a deal with him. I started doing the Cameo Theater. And I just turned it, it turned into a regular thing. One or two shows a week, anywhere from 300 to 500 to 700 kids. And it was South Beach back then when it was cool. There was pizza parlors and art, and there was other bars. There was the Deuce Bar. There was, you know, a lot of places to hang out. You're right off the ocean. Was the owner at that time of the Cameo, was that Zori Hayon? Yeah, yeah, that was, that's his name. Why, would, why did he trust you to start doing shows at the Cameo? I think he heard my, I don't know. I think he heard my... Uh, I think you heard my clippings. I, you know, it got, again, it's going to sound so egotistical. I was like the resident punk for the straight world. Like I'd go to other bars and other clubs just casually and they would recognize me because of, because I'm promoting the shows. I'm talking to the newspapers every week, every week. So it became like that. It became like the resident punk for straight Miami. Yeah. Especially in Dade County. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. I think he, he heard about this and, um, Hey, money's money. I was going to give him like, you know, rent the place for a few hundred dollars for the night. That's more than he's ever going to make showing some, you know, B-level Spanish movies. It's not going to happen. Do you remember the last movie that was actually shown there before you took things over? Yeah, he let me do some booking in there. I think one of the last movies we showed there was that Richard Gere movie, Power, because I, I was going to try to, okay, I'm going to do a, a cool movie house and we'll have concerts on the weekends. And I was, I was trying to do for like, like a week, maybe two. And then it was like, don't worry about the movies, just do your concerts. And he stopped doing the Spanish movies because after we did like the first show and he made Buku Bucks, and I could do another show the next week and then another show after the week after that. Then it was like, oh God, I don't need to have a movie theater. So they were shut. And also Serge was a big part of it too. Serge was our resident Cuban refugee. He was our artist. He made the flyers for Flynn's. He made the calendars. He took a residency at the Cameo Theater, literally living there. And uh, he had an apartment downtown, but he was like basically living there at the Cameo. My apartment was only like two blocks away. So uh, once we took a residency there, Zori was fine with that because he knew how much I loved how much I loved the building. There was some question about whether we fit city codes, Miami Beach city code for a live venue and they sent the inspector and he pointed out a thing we had a whole list holes we had to plug and this and that and uh we did it and Serge and me and some other people helped out and uh but then there was still that whole thing you know that that whole punk is violent so i did a show and i invited the mayor i don't know if the mayor came but he sent somebody from his office or her office we had a female mayor back then 
and uh, chief of police, fire marshal, and I gave them front row upstairs in the balcony. And I let them watch the mosh pit from an elevated view. And then between the bands, I said, you see, think of it as like football practice. Guys, this is their way of teenage kids getting their energy out. Think of it as football practice, except there's music, loud music and lights. And they got it. They got the analogy right away. Teenage kids getting their emotions out. Yeah. Were there any injuries at that time or anything that may have yes. made them, anything that you feel like made them rethink their decision on letting this kind of go? From that, from that point on, we were left alone. From that point on, one of the things that was wonderful with Miami, when you're doing punk and alternative, is that they don't really care what you do. Some of the people get the little stick up their butt, but they lose it right away because it'll make the money and it's harmless. And it's just, we got the Flynn's, we made him money. He's happy. If Zori doesn't have to do a damn thing except get a few hundred dollars every week from me for concerts, he's happy. See? If they know by your actions that you love this building, you love this place, you're going to take care of it, they can yeah. just kick back, let you do your thing. Were you making a good living at this time? Like, was this your full-time job, or did you have another gig on the side? No, it was my – I mean, I stopped driving a cab – sometime during uh, 27 birds. So it kind of became a full-time, but you understand living on like, you know, 200 bucks a week, no big deal. We were paying these ridiculous rents and cost of everything like it is today. So you can live very comfortably on like nothing. We're punk rockers. We go shoplift groceries, you know, uh, Ray Bones. He was one of my DJs back in the day. And we used to go shoplifting for food, for groceries. And he'd come back with a tin of sardines. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> what does your parents think? You know, parents may want their kids to grow up, go to college and get a, what they well, call a real job. So what did your parents think about what you were doing? Dad knew I was happy. You know, he knew I wanted to be in bands. And this was kind of like being in a band, you know, putting on shows. So he grooved on it. He was okay with it. But, you know, he really didn't see it. He was still up in New York. And uh, I watched the Mets win the World Series with him in 1986. And then sometime in the 90s, he moved down to like Palm Bay, which is like near uh, Melbourne. In the 90s, I was in California. So he never really had a thought about it. He was already just living his life. My mom's been out here in California since like the 50s, 60s. 60s. So um, I've always had one foot in Los Angeles since I was a child. Then when they got older and they realized that I wasn't leaving like a trail of wives and a trail of children owing anybody money, it was like, oh, maybe he's the smart one. With it being the 80s and some of the other people you were associated and friends with, did you find yourself getting caught up at all with the whole drug scene of that time too? Not so much. Not so much. Um, I mean, I dabbled like everybody else did. It wasn't until I come out to Los Angeles I got into speed. That was the years in LA here. No, I, it was weird. I, I always looked at it askew, like, okay, whatever, you know. It was there, it was present, but I, I, I argue with people all the time that it doesn't really define the scene. I know maybe it does, and I'm just being ignorant of it because a lot of that money financed a lot of the shit that was out there from the clubs, businesses, and stuff. But it wasn't that much in my life, not really. I was a pothead. <laughs> 
smoke pot. At all, during all these experiences that you were having, did you ever stop for a minute and just kind of ask yourself, how am I doing this? I think of life as like a pinball machine. You're like, you're bouncing around from adventure to adventure. Um, when you stop bouncing, you become settled. And that's what happened to me here. I, I found this place in Silver Lake, a place I could just be. And I've been in the same place for like almost 30 years. And I was cool because my younger life, I was just bouncing from adventure to adventure to adventure, you know? That was the New York City kid in me. Um, organizational side and just guy willing to make a deal. Going to write about that. That's that's my uh, my goal now in late in life is to, you know, do the archive, write a little autobiography for what it's worth, but write about the history of our time there in Florida, an organized timeline of it. Uh, the last 30 years here in L.A. have been great. Worked in a few movies. I was in uh, From Dust Till Dawn. I was in Strange Days. Just background work. And I was in a couple of great bands out here, Liquid Jesus. Okay. Boombox, um, Deliverance. And um, I've had a couple of great women out here, too, that taught me a lot. Did you feel like when you moved out west, you were almost starting over again? Yes. That was the thing. You know, when you leave Long Island, my high school, and you go to the, and you got your old apartment in Nassau County, and you're watching an apartment for somebody in the village, that's a restart. When you fall in love with a little Jewish girl and move to South Beach in the late 70s, that's a definite restart. Okay? When you leave the life that I had in Miami and all the things I had done, and I just got tired. I had broken up with a girlfriend. The preachers were broken up. Paco was running the cameo. So I had no income and nothing to really hang on to me. And the building was getting sold. So we just said, California. Packed everything in a van, drove across country. And uh, Greg Ginn from Black Flag, he gave me my first job out here. Really? Working in his offices. It was cool. I worked out here as a DJ. I did delivery work out here. But each time is a restart. Even when I left Hollywood... And moved to Silver Lake, which is this really quiet oasis in between Hollywood and like Dodger Stadium. Very hip neighborhood. It's like the hipster neighborhood of uh, Los Angeles. Uh, that was a restart. Leaving Hollywood to come here was a restart. And um, a wise man once said you should do that periodically in life to give yourself fresh intent, a fresh viewpoint. Absolutely. And just thinking about that for a second. The Richard Shelter of the 1980s South Florida to the Richard Shelter of the 2020s in California. Talk about the difference and how you've grown from then to now. I've written about this a lot. People that read my writing, they, they know. I, I, was a, I was a skinny punk rock kid back then. I was a concert promoter, lead singer. And then I came out here. I grew my hair long. I started riding a motorcycle, started doing speed. Uh, I lived in Hollywood. Um, hustle tickets out here. Um, the Richard Shelter now, I'm like a very comfortable old bohemian living in my own little hideaway. Bohemian is the best word I can think of. And there's a big difference when you're 64 and comfortable and when you're 25 and you want to, you, you feel like you want to create something, you know? I don't feel bad about leaving Miami because the life I've found myself out here in Los Angeles is amazing. And a lot of my friends that stayed in Miami that didn't either sell out and become straight, they ended up in some very bad, you know, I don't want to say who, what, but Florida is not a, if you don't have money, Florida is a place where you can just end up on the street. Whereas California will take care of you. 
is a big difference. Would you say that you're retired at this point? Yeah, I'm 64. I mean, my retirement age from my generation is 66 and a half. Mm-hmm. So after that, I'm, you know, I might work part-time, you know. Now it seems to be remote work is back in vogue. So maybe I can get some uh, part-time remote work. Mm-hmm. My plans are just like, most, the most important thing to me right now is to watch my health, lose some weight, and keep writing the stories of um, my time in New York, my time in Miami. One of the words that has been used to describe you and the impact you had on the South Florida punk rock scene is iconic. How do you feel about that? Reluctantly grateful. Um, I remember what Joe Strummer said that, you know, if you start to doubt what you did, when people come up to you and tell you how important what you did was important to them, it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. It's so when, when, Guys come to me now, they're in their 50s. Oh, dude, man. The shows you put on when you were when I was a kid, they were so important to me, man. It's, it's cool. It's cool to hear. Uh, so if that's iconic, I'll take it. But at the time, I wasn't trying to be iconic. I was just putting together shows because I liked doing it. It was fun. I got into it. I was good at it. As Heisenberg says, I did it for me, and I liked it. I was good at it. And it felt good because... I brought organization to a scene that was, ah, and some cats learned from me. You know, I mean, there were some cats in really good, really cool little clubs on the side. The Banal Club was cool for a while. There, there were a few other small clubs that started doing new ways of. After I left, I heard there was, yeah, of course, Churchill's blew up, Washington Square for a while. I don't know anything about these clubs, but I'm glad to see that something continued. I think that's lacking now. Like I said earlier, it's, if there was a full-time alternative club, punk, new wave, alternative, you would see more bands out there getting formed. A good club can affect its uh, the society around it. Right. I keep hoping that somebody's going to open up a cool club down in Florida. <laughs> this may not be the easiest question for you because you promoted a lot of bands. And I want to focus on the Florida ones for this question. Okay. Out of all the Florida bands that you had promoted over the course of your career, if you had to create a showcase of your favorites for one night only, five bands. Five bands? Five bands. Which five bands would make that showcase for you? Number one is Charlie. Number two is The Front. Number three is uh, Cats on Holiday. Crank. After that, it becomes like probably Amazing Grace. Honorable mention is like the cichlids, but that was almost, I was like an outsider when the cichlids were happening, you know? Amazing Grace is one of those bands. They only put out one, I think one record. And I love that record so much. It's such a good record. I find that not many people really know about them. You know why that's the case with Amazing Grace? Any of these bands had, taking their show to California, to Los Angeles, or San Francisco, or even New York on a regular basis, they would have been a lot more popular and reached a lot more people. We were very, very isolated down there in South Florida. So great bands like Crank and Charlie and The Front and, and Amazing Grace. Jesus, you, you know, these are great bands, great live bands. And... Um, if they can get in front of more people. Anyway, that's that's the perennial question about bands in Florida. A few have broken out. The Mavericks, you know, you know Casey and the Sunshine Band. <laughs> but um, Marilyn Manson. 
Yeah, Marilyn Manson, Spooky mm. Kids. Did you ever see them play live back then, or are you already gone, right? I was already gone. You know, yeah. Over the years, I've heard that different people that came to Flynn's and came to the cameo that I didn't know. And, you know, I heard that Perry Farrell used to go to, used to see Crank at, uh, at Flynn's. I heard that Johnny Depp had gone to the cameo. I know that Marilyn Manson had come to the cameo. I heard that, like, first person. Yeah, I was there with him, you know, that kind of thing. So, small way, helped out, influencing. I would imagine so. You think about, we already talked about, there weren't a lot. I mean, there were some other clubs, but there weren't a lot of clubs doing what you were doing. <laughs> well, let, me, let me explain about the thing about here. I'll tell you a true story. Yeah. I had a BMX bicycle with white tires, covered with punk, punk stickers, and the air valves were like little white dice. Cool little BMX. There's a picture of me riding that bike in the Miami Herald back then. It was after a gig. I couldn't sleep. I got my bicycle. And we're only a few blocks away from Lincoln Road Mall. Now, back then, Lincoln Road Mall was literally half empty, boarded up storefronts. But they're trying to entice new business. So for some reason, they kept the lights on and the fountains going at night, which is like weird. So I would ride my bicycle up there. And one night I'm up there and I hear suicidal tendencies playing on a, on a ghetto blaster. As I get near one of the fountains, it's a bunch of kids. I don't recognize them. They're part of the big crowd of, you know, 500 kids that come to the cameo. They, I knew they were cameo kids, you know, and they got their skateboards and they're doing ollies off this fountain while this ghetto blaster is playing uh, suicidal institutionalized. And I just thought, cool, cool. Uh, what do they say about, about the Z-Boys? You know, you're playing amongst the ruins, you know? That really left the mark on you, huh? Yeah, it did. That was, that was you know, you couldn't help be influenced mm. by the architecture, mm. the feel of being in this incredibly beautiful place that really nobody knew about. Oh, yeah, Miami, but they don't realize how beautiful it was. Now everybody knows, but back then it was our little secret. Cheap food, cheap rents, and the beginning of the art scene, the beginning of this large gay scene down there, the beginning of mm. punk and new and new music scene. It was just amazing. Right. And it was just us. And that's a double-edged sword. It is just us. And that was it. And that's why you keep asking, how come this band didn't break out? How come that band? Because we were isolated down there. They didn't start finding Miami Beach until like the 90s. We had a few celebs that came by, right? You know, Madonna had bought a place back then on Star Island, I think. Um I know Stallone, Ronnie Wood bought a club on South Ocean Drive, like around Fifth Street. He had that place down there. And that was the beginning of it. It, was, it trickled in. But it had to start somewhere, right? Start somewhere. We were there before all that. That's right. That's right. So uh, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Just to kind of close out the interview, uh, I'm going to turn it over to you. Any final words you want to share before we wrap things up today? Thank you for doing what you're doing. You know, I've, I've watched some, a lot of the interviews and they're very cool. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts, mostly political stuff, you know, Pod Save the World and stuff. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. 